Today's reading is from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, so I prophesied as, I, as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied and he commanded, as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am Lord. When I open up your graves and bring you up from them, I'll put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you all here. Uh, be handy if you had a Bible open there at Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, especially, which we're looking at this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll ask for God's help as we look at His Word together this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, the many blessings that we enjoy as your people. We thank you for the gift of fellowship with one another. And we thank you for your word uh, that we can uh, learn from, uh, hear you speak to us through. We pray that today as we hear you uh, explain uh, some of the, uh, the wonders of your plans for your people, uh, that we would appreciate fresh uh, what we have in the gift of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's said that insanity is doing uh, the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, does anyone know who that quote is usually attributed to? It's usually said that Albert Einstein uh, said that, but there's not really any evidence to suggest that it came from him. Um, it was a much later uh, development. But like a lot of truisms, that one's not always true, is it? Uh, I think in many areas of life, we actually make progress through doing things over and over again, uh, through persevering, through the same routines and habits. Uh, there's a basketball team in the States 
Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, an Australian guy, Ben Simmons, uh, plays on their team. Uh, and they've got a famous statement, uh, a little motto that floats around their team. Uh, a few years ago, they were languishing right down the bottom of the league. And their manager at the time uh, came up with this statement. He said to all of the fans they needed to be patient and they needed to trust the process. Uh, and this has become a catch cry for their team. In fact, they, they have their own logos. They print the T-shirts with that on it. Uh, and so over the years, they've asked their, their fans to trust the process that they're working through. The results will come, they keep telling them. Now, for the record, the team has improved, but they still haven't won a championship. And some of the people are starting to wonder if perhaps the first truism is now a little more accurate. Uh, it's insane to keep doing the same things over and over again and keep expecting a different result. It can feel... A little bit like that, I think, as we read through the Old Testament. We see the same thing happening over and over again in Israel's story, in Israel's history. And it feels like nothing's ever going to change. A kind of sad and tragic, broken record. We see God continually rescue his people. They're faithful, perhaps for a time, but they soon turn away. They end up ignoring God, they end up openly disobeying Him, and that eventually leads to God's judgment coming down upon them. God will rescue them again, and so the cycle begins again. And it's been that way with God and Israel ever since Moses first led them out of the desert. In fact, you could argue it started even before that. There seems to be no hope by the time we get to this point in Israel's story that anything could ever be any different. In fact, as we've seen in Ezekiel, things are now at their lowest ever point. The city of Jerusalem has fallen. God's people are in exile. But as we saw last week, it's at this point, at their lowest ever, that Ezekiel begins to speak words of hope to God's people. You see that God is not done with his people just yet. But rather than simply take things back to the way they were before... We see that God, in fact, has another plan. A plan that's going to break this cycle of sin and judgment. God has a plan to forge a new covenant with his people. Now, in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, the passage that we just had read for us, uh, it begins with Ezekiel being taken to this valley full of dry bones, these sun-bleached bones. It, it kind of has a bit of a feel of like something out of a horror movie, uh, despite Lindell's happy animation, uh, I think it's a pretty creepy scene that Ezekiel is introduced to. He's standing among a mass of human remains. And God asks Ezekiel a question. He says, can these bones live? Uh, now, Ezekiel, I think, uh, does the rather wise thing. When you ask a question you don't know the answer to, he deflects that one back to God and he says, God, you alone know the answer to that one. God tells Ezekiel to speak to the bones, to tell them to come back to life. And that's exactly what he sees happen. The bones start to come together, we're told, with a, a rattling sound. They're, they're clinking as the bones start to reform into skeletons. We're told that flesh and tendons come over them and eventually skin covers them as well. And finally, the breath of God enters into them and they come back to life. This vast army of resurrected people. 
Now, it all seems pretty strange, but this is not a zombie apocalypse. Uh, God, in fact, explains what this image represents. I go to, if you've got the Bible open, go to verse 11, chapter 37. It says, Then he said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So it's not a hard image for us to understand. It's explained quite clearly that this valley of bones is a metaphor. It's a an image for the people of Israel. They are dead and lifeless. That as a nation, as a people, it's over for them. Their hope is gone. Jerusalem's been conquered. The temple's been destroyed. The people are scattered. They've been driven into exile. But God says not all hope is lost. He's not done with them yet. God is a God of new beginnings and he can bring life even where there is death. And so God, he promises that his people will one day rise again, that they will one day return to the land of Israel, that this exile that they're experiencing will not last forever. The vision that Ezekiel sees in this valley is a wonderful picture of restoration. God's people will one day return to the land. And so it's a word of encouragement to Ezekiel and to the exiles. God is wanting to assure them that they've not been abandoned, that there is a future for them yet. And in the rest of the chapter, we see that promise expanded even further. As God is going to bring the people back to the land, um, he says that there's going to be a, a new unity amongst God's people once more. And so the next little parlor trick that Ezekiel has to perform is using a couple of sticks. From verse 15 through to the uh, end of the chapter, we read about this, another illustration that Ezekiel gives to the people. He's to take, God tells him, to write on a couple of sticks. There's two sticks and he's to write on one of them belonging to Judah. And then on the other stick he's to write belonging to Joseph. Um, or Ephraim is the other way of thinking about that. These two sticks are to represent the two halves of the kingdom that got divided after Solomon's reign. I don't know if you know that the story, but the kingdom of Israel got split into a northern portion and a southern portion. The northern portion became known as the nation of Ephraim, and the southern portion, the kingdom of Judah. Um, Ephraim is Joseph's son, if you remember back to the story of the, the 12 sons, um, and so they're, they're kind of interchangeable names. And so what... Ezekiel is told to do is to strap these two sticks together um, and in that to represent to the people that this once divided nation will one day be reunited again. So Israel takes the two sticks, he binds them together and he explains what he's doing to the people. Now go to verse 20 of chapter 37 if you've got it there. God tells him to hold before their eyes the sticks you've written on and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over them, 
and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. So it's a picture of a, a reunited people, a restored nation. The divided nation is divided no more. God says you're going to be one people living in the land of Israel again. It's kind of a return, if you like, to the way things were under the reign of King David and King Solomon. Now one of the issues that we have with this image that Ezekiel is presenting to the people is that historically speaking, this never really happened. This doesn't take place. God does bring the exiles back from Babylon. They return to the land of Israel after about 70 years in Babylon. A large portion of the exiles return to Israel, return to Jerusalem. Uh, they're allowed to rebuild the city. If you're familiar with the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah, that's that whole period where they rebuild the walls of the city and they rebuild the temple itself. But this image that Ezekiel's got on view here is never fully realised. The northern tribes had pretty much been wiped out by the Assyrians. They never rise again and reunite with their southern brothers. And the nation itself is never again an independent nation ruled by one of the kings in the Davidic line. If this promise is fulfilled, it's only ever in part. There's a restoration of sorts, but it never quite reaches the heights that Ezekiel puts before the people here. And if that seems a bit odd, I think it's because we're meant to see that God is here not just promising the people a fresh start. It's not as though God is just wanting to hit the reset button to return things back to the way they were before. Now God here wants to speak of a new reality for the people of God. Something much more radical is needed to break the cycle of sin and death. If God brings the Israelites back to the land, just gives them another king, history is only going to repeat itself. In fact, that's kind of what does happen. God brings the exiles back to the land. They rebuild the city. They rebuild the temple. But it doesn't fix the problem. Because the problem lies with the people themselves. Unless the people are changed, it's just going to be more of the same. And so God says here that he's going to do something new. God is in fact going to fix what is broken with the old covenant. He's going to fix the hearts of the people. God explains what's coming in chapter 36 that we looked at last week. Uh, if you've got your Bible, flip back to chapter 36 and read with me from verse 24. There God says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God firstly says that he's going to come and cleanse his people. All of the defilement that we've seen through those first 30 chapters of Ezekiel, God's going to wash all that away and make the people clean. And then God says he's going to do something else. He's going to give these people new hearts and a new spirit. 
In fact, as he says in verse 27, this spirit will be nothing less than God's own spirit. And that spirit will bring about a transformation, a transformation of attitude, a transformation of life. The people's hearts are going to be changed so that they'll be able to follow God faithfully. They will be moved to follow his decrees. They'll be careful to keep God's law. The hope that Ezekiel speaks of here is not a new one in the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Moses, a thousand years before, uh, had spoken of his hope that this would one day be the case for all of God's people. Moses, there was an occasion when he was feeling overwhelmed by the burden of leading God's people. And so God tells him to select 70 elders to help him in the task, in the job. And God gives his spirit to those elders as well. Some of those elders end up prophesying in the camp, uh, and Joshua asks Moses to tell them to stop. But Moses says this in response. This is in Numbers. Moses replies, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, in Moses' day, and under the period of the old covenant with Israel, God's spirit wasn't given to all of God's people. It was only given to particular people for particular purposes. And so Moses here expresses his wish that all of God's people would be blessed with the Spirit of God. And so what Moses wished for, Ezekiel, he promises. And what Ezekiel promised, we see fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when God pours out his Spirit on his church for the first time. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out on God's people in a new way. And from that time on, God says all of his people will have the Spirit of God poured into their hearts. It's what God's people have been waiting for. And it's what God's people desperately needed. See, Israel had proven long ago that they simply weren't able to follow God as he wanted them to. With their whole hearts. We see them turn back to God for periods of time, but within a generation or two, they'd gone back to their old ways, worshipped the gods of the nations around them, living these corrupt and immoral lives. They needed new hearts, they needed the Spirit of God. And so when Jesus comes and brings in his kingdom, this is what he brings. He not only deals with our sin. He not only cleanses us, but he ushers in this new age, this age of salvation, this age of the Spirit of God, where God's Spirit enables people not only to come alive to God, to know God, but to then live faithfully as his children. See, for us, this side of the cross, that's our privilege, that's our blessing, that's what God has given to us. That's what we are now a part of. We are people reborn with these spirit-filled hearts. That's what belongs to the new people of God. The images that we find in the book of Ezekiel only find their true fulfilment in what Jesus does and in what Jesus brings. Even the illustration with the two sticks, that picture of a restored, unified nation. In the end, we see that that's image is not really about the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes becoming a single nation again. It's about God bringing his people together 
people from every tribe and every nation. Paul writes a letter to the Ephesian church and he talks about this unity that God has forged between Jew and Gentile. And he talks about it in these terms. He says his purpose, that's God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So there's two people being spoken of here, are the Jews and the Gentiles. God, he says, his purpose was to create one new people. People from all nations. God will reconcile them to himself and he'll reconcile them to each other. God's purpose was never to save a bunch of disconnected individuals. He wanted to create a new community of people. We call this group of people the church. That is what we are privileged to belong to. I think this is one of those things that we so often take for granted because it's just our experience of the Christian life, belonging to a community of believers. We enjoy so many privileges and blessings that the people of Ezekiel's day could only look forward to. They could probably barely comprehend They could only hope, perhaps, that their nation would be restored to its former glory. But God had far bigger plans. God has a plan that he brings to fruition through his son, Jesus. A plan where he will pour out his spirit on all people who put their trust in him. Form them into a new people, a community of believers. Have you ever wondered why... God didn't just send Jesus earlier in the story. Why does he have this elaborate plan involving Abraham's descendants and the nation of Israel and this covenant that he forms with them, a story that traces out over more than a thousand years of human history? Why not just skip to the Jesus bit? Well, I can't pretend to have a definitive answer for you on that one. You'll have to ask God yourself one day. But... I'm sure the answer in part lies in our benefit, that we would be able to appreciate both our need of Jesus as well as the incredible blessings that we enjoy because of him. Israel's story is like a a thousand year long lesson on why we need God's grace. For a thousand years we see what happens when people try and keep God's law without the Spirit of God. And it's not a happy story. It ought to keep us from thinking that we might perhaps be able to do it through sheer willpower, through trying our hardest, through personal discipline. If you think that way, you are kidding yourself. And Israel's history shows us that we're simply not capable of doing it. We need the intervention of God. We need His grace. We need his saviour and we need his spirit. Thank God that through Jesus, God has given us all of that and more. These things that Ezekiel and the people of his day could only hope for and look forward to, that's ours to enjoy in Jesus. 
all the riches of the old covenant promises find their fulfillment, find their perfection in Jesus. And that's what we have been blessed to receive. God has given us renewed hearts, changed hearts that lead to transformed lives. If you belong to God, know that you're not just someone who's been forgiven, not just someone who's been saved, but you're someone that God is transforming. Someone that's capable of pleasing God, delighting Him with your life. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of us do that perfectly, but that's what God's Spirit enables us to do. That's what God's Spirit works within us, that we can make progress in our struggle with sin, that we can grow and mature as His children. If you have God's Spirit within you, you will know that struggle. The struggle to be obedient to God. The struggle to be faithful to Him. The struggle that we're engaged with. That God powerfully enables us to make progress in. Now we don't do that in order to earn God's favour. To somehow gain credit with God. To work our way in. Now we do that from a position of loved children. Those that God declares are right with him. Whose future with God is assured. We've been cleansed. Saved through the grace of God. Thanks be to God, he's given us these new hearts. Blessed with his very spirit. Are you thankful for that? That's something worth praising and thanking God for. That new life that he's given you. Yes, we rightly thank God for the mercy that he's shown us. Cleansing us from our sin. But we ought to also be grateful for the way that God continues to do his work in our lives. So can I suggest that perhaps you take some time today or during the next week. And reflect on where God has already brought you in your Christian life. Think about what he's already done in your life, the way that he has shaped and changed you over time. Perhaps that's some aspect of your character, your contentment, your love for others, the way you view others, the way you treat them, the way you show them compassion and kindness. Might be one of those things, it might be something different altogether. But this much is true. If you belong to God, He has not left you as He found you. So thank God for the progress that you've made. And thank God for the work that He promises He will continue to do in your life. As He shapes you, His love child, into the person that He wants you to be. Ezekiel also reminds us that we live in exciting times. The times where Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is Saviour, and where His Spirit is still at work, transforming people into the image of His Son. We are the people who get to live in this time that Ezekiel is speaking about. And we should remember what an incredible and powerful thing it is 
for God to be at work in that way. And to remember that God involves us in that process. God has work for us to do in this space. He's given us the good news of Jesus. He's given us the task of sharing that message with the world. And he says that he's backing us. His power is behind it. In fact, his power works through it. So we need to remember that, I think, when we feel weak and ineffective in sharing the good news about Jesus with those that we know. And we might be that, weak and ineffective. But God is not. And his message is not. He's given us his word and he's given us his spirit. So let's share the gospel of Jesus as we should. With some excitement. With some confidence. And with an expectation. To see God work powerfully in the lives of those that we know and love. We're going to pray together and Tracy's going to lead us in that. Father God, we praise you for being a God whom we can trust to keep his promises even when we continue to sin and disappoint you. Thank you for sending your son to fulfil those promises and to reconcile us with you and with each other as one church. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that gives us new hearts and transforms our lives. Please convict us of our need for forgiveness and salvation. Remind us of the amazing grace that you have shown us through Jesus and our need to rely on your spirit to live in obedience. We pray that your spirit will work within each of us here today so that we can live lives that show the world that we belong to you, our sovereign Lord. Please help us to share the great news of Jesus' birth as we approach Christmas and give us opportunities for genuine conversations about the hope we have in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.